0: Not only do I think this is one of the best episodes ever of this podcast, it couldn't be more timely because it relates to a number of things happening on Broadway and in the world this week. First and foremost, April 14th, the day this episode is being released, will mark the 62nd anniversary of the Broadway opening of that landmark musical Bye Bye Birdie. This is a show that I don't think gets nearly the respect it deserves, both in regard to its writing and for the important role it played in Broadway history. As you will hear, this Best Musical Tony Award winner not only was the first show to bring rock music to Broadway, it also marked the Broadway debuts of a remarkable young creative team that would revitalize Broadway in the 1960s and beyond. And this episode's in-depth look at the final decade of the Golden Age of Broadway, at least as I define it, also includes some discussion of Funny Girl— And, of course, the much-talked-about and highly-anticipated new revival of that show will open on Broadway on April 24th. And in the final section, I discuss Fiddler on the Roof, which unfortunately also has a direct connection to current events. As most regular listeners will know, this podcast is a spinoff of the history of the Broadway musical course that I teach at the University of Washington School of Drama. And a few weeks ago, just as Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, my students had just completed an assignment to watch the film version of Fiddler on the Roof. The next day, I showed them a map of the Pale of Settlement, which, from 1791 to 1917, was the only section of Imperial Russia in which Jews were allowed to live. Where was the Pale of Settlement? Well, it included all of modern-day Belarus, Lithuania, and Moldova, parts of Poland, and much of Ukraine. In fact, Sholem Aleichem, the creator of the Tevye stories on which the musical is based, was born in a town about eight miles south of Kyiv. And the fictional town of Anatevka is based in part on a town called Boyarka that is about 14 miles south of Kyiv. And as you will remember, the character of Perchik, the young student revolutionary, is a student in Kyiv. And after he marries Huddle, he returns there to join the revolution, where he is arrested and sent to a work camp in Siberia. The final images of Tevya and his family being forced to leave their village very closely paralleled the video and photos that we were seeing of Ukrainian refugees being forced to leave their homes. And of equal impact was the moment when Tevya tells the Russian constable, I have some advice for you. Get off my land. This is still my home, my land. Get off my land. It never ceases to amaze me how much ongoing resonance these silly Broadway musicals continue to have. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the extraordinary story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical, and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Golden Age of Broadway, Part 3. As the 1950s came to a close, Broadway musicals were at the very center of American culture. Through their chart-topping original cast albums, their songs, stories, and characters were known and loved coast to coast. Broadway show tunes were the biggest pop hits of the day, recorded by the most popular singers and bands. Broadway shows, their creators, and their stars were often featured on the covers of major magazines and highlighted on the highest-rated television programs. And many of the hit musicals of the 1940s and early 50s were being transformed into immensely popular major motion pictures that expanded the Broadway audience even more. Then, in 1960, as if on cue, two immensely popular shows will kick off the decade by foreshadowing several major changes in American culture, changes that will dramatically affect the Broadway musical and by the end of the decade leave its future in doubt. ¶¶ While Broadway was at its zenith in terms of prestige and influence, meanwhile, down in Bohemian Greenwich Village, the off-Broadway theater movement was growing into a disruptive, countercultural alternative to mainstream theater. And in the process, it was giving birth to small, quirky, unusual musicals that would never have flown on Broadway, most notably the Fantastics. Tom Jones, who wrote the book and lyrics, and Harvey Schmidt, who composed the music, began working on the show while they were still in college in Texas. And although they had at first conceived it as a large-scale, Rodgers and Hammerstein-style musical, circumstances led them to collaborate with director Word Baker to reinvent it as a small-cast, small-stage, bare-bones production. The plot of The Fantastics is based on Edmund Roston’s 1894 French play called Les Romanesques. This is kind of a reverse Romeo and Juliet story in which two fathers pretend to hate each other in order to trick their defiant teenage children into falling in love and getting married. The Fantastics premiered in the intimate 153-seat Sullivan Street Playhouse and the show's simple platform set and thrust stage created an intimate and engaging effect. Word Baker's direction was highly stylized and it combined traditional musical theater staging with French mime, commedia dell'art, kabuki, no, and other Asian and avant-garde theater techniques and The Fantastics features one of the most captivating and delightful scores of the era, both refreshingly unconventional and reassuringly traditional at the same time. And out of it came several very popular hit songs. Soon it's gonna rain, I can see it Soon it's gonna rain, I can tell Soon it's gonna rain, what are we gonna Soon it's gonna rain, I can feel it. Soon it's gonna rain, I can tell. Soon it's gonna rain, what'll we do with you? The impact of the show was so strong that the original off-Broadway production ran for an incredible 42 years, from 1960 until 2002, a total of 17,162 performances, making it the world's longest-running musical, a title it still holds. And during that long New York run, The Fantastics was produced virtually everywhere throughout the United States, and in at least 67 other countries around the world. The show's original backers earned a more than 240% return on their investment. Author Scott Miller writes that the Fantastics was a musical born of one of the most fascinating periods in American history, the 1950s, When traditional domesticity was being challenged, when organized religion was being challenged, when the unquestioned authority of parents and other experts was being questioned, and when young Americans were becoming obsessed with individuality, with rebellion, with freedom, with art as a means to criticize social and political structures, and most disconcerting of all, with modern jazz. All of this would find full bloom in the 60s but the seeds were here in the 1950s with the beat Riders, when composer Harvey Schmidt and writer Tom Jones, two young turtlenecked Bohemians in 1950s Manhattan, were creating this masterpiece. I completely agree with Scott. The Fantastics is a masterpiece, but it became so popular and its avant-garde style was so absorbed into our mainstream theatrical culture that the show's radicalness and innovation is now often overlooked. That same year, the satirical musical comedy Bye Bye Birdie became the very first Broadway show to include any kind of rock and roll music in its score... as well as the very first to dramatize the impact on American culture of the post-war baby boom generation, the largest in history, and the generation gap that its dominance created. It was only four years prior to Birdie's 1960 premiere that Elvis Presley had first emerged on the scene as a rock music sensation. Of course, The Birth of Rock and Roll is its own uniquely American story of how black and white music came together and combined with sexual liberation to revolutionize an art form, but I'll leave that to somebody else's podcast. In 1956, Elvis had made his first legendary appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, during which, because of his infamous pelvic gyrations, the television cameras would only show him from the waist up, and his singing could barely be heard over the screaming of the young girls in the audience. And all of this turned Elvis into a superstar. Then, in 1958, he was unexpectedly drafted into the army and had to put his singing career on hold, much to the dismay of devastated teenage girls across America who were sent into waves of grief and despair. Inspired by these real-life incidents, the creators of Bye Bye Birdie invented a fictional version of Elvis named Conrad Birdie and devised a plot about what might happen if a sexually provocative young rock star was suddenly thrust into the small-town, middle-class, middle-American lives of the citizens of Sweet Apple, Ohio. The show's authors took every opportunity they could find to satirize mid-century American values, society, and culture. But if you've only seen the movie of Bye Bye Birdie, then you really haven't seen the show, because much of the satire was watered down for the film. Bye Bye Birdie was the surprise hit of the season. The New York Daily News called it the funniest, most captivating, and most expert musical comedy one could hope to see in several seasons of showgoing. This one show not only launched Dick Van Dyke and Chita Rivera into major stardom, it also launched the careers of three young men in their early 30s, who would go on to have a tremendous influence on the final decade of the golden age of Broadway and beyond. Composer Charles Strauss was born in New York City in 1928 to middle-class Jewish parents who worked in the tobacco business. He began taking piano lessons at the age of 10, and at the age of 15, he entered the Eastman School of Music at the University of Rochester. He then studied classical music composition in Paris with the famous teacher Nadia Bollinger, and then returned to the United States to study with Aaron Copland. In 1949, he met lyricist Lee Adams at a party, and a long and successful musical partnership was born. The duo started out contributing songs to numerous reviews. Then in 1958, producer Edward Padula was auditioning writing teams for a new musical about teenagers. Strauss and Adams were eventually selected and during the next year they wrote over 50 possible songs for the show. And because the show was being written by this team of unknowns, they had to pitch the show and perform their songs at over 75 backers' auditions in order to raise enough financing to put it on Broadway. The show, eventually titled Bye Bye Birdie, became an enormous hit, going on to win six Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Strauss and Adams won a Tony for Best Score their first time out, and this was in a season that included Lerner and Lowe's Camelot and scores by Julie Stein and Meredith Wilson. This absolutely put them on the map. In partnership with Lee Adams and other collaborators, Charles Strauss would go on to create 13 more Broadway musicals, including two more Best Musical Tony winners, Applause and Annie. The book writer for the show was Michael Stewart. He was both gay and Jewish. He was born in New York City in 1924. He told friends that he had decided to write for the theater at the age of 10 when he was taken by his family to see the Cole Porter musical Anything Goes. After attending Queens College and the Yale School of Drama, He began contributing comedy sketches to several off-Broadway reviews during the early 1950s. Following the success of Bye Bye Birdie, he would go on to write the book and sometimes the lyrics for 15 more Broadway musicals, including the long-running hits Carnival, Hello Dolly, I Love My Wife, Barnum, and 42nd Street. Michael Stewart often complained that musical book writers were not accorded the same kind of appreciation as were composers and lyricists. I don't know why any bright person would want to be a musical book writer, he told the New York Times in 1979. You're scorned by critics, you get no recognition from the public, and the money isn't that good either. I feel that I've written two classic American musicals, Bye Bye Birdie and Hello Dolly, but both of those books got terrible reviews. Michael Stewart died of AIDS in 1986 at the age of 63. Bye Bye Birdie and the two musicals that came just before it, West Side Story and Gypsy, heralded the rise of the director-choreographer... With these two jobs now combined into one, a single person would now often be in control of nearly every aspect of a musical. Although he was born in Illinois, Gower Champion grew up in Los Angeles, and he attended Hollywood's Fairfax High School, known as the High School of the Stars because so many future movie stars had attended, and this is where he became an avid theater performer. By the age of 15, he and his first dance partner Gene Tyler were dancing professionally in Los Angeles area nightclubs. They Landed on Broadway in 1939 as featured performers in the revue Streets of Paris, starring Brazilian singer Carmen Miranda. Then, after appearing in two flops, service in the Coast Guard during World War II put a hold on Champion's Broadway career. He returned to show business in the star studded 1946 film Till the Clouds Roll By, which was about the life of Jerome Kern, and that's where he met Marjorie Belcher. They formed a new dance team and got married in 1947. Champion made his stage directing debut in 1948 with the musical Lend an Ear, for which he won the first of his Tony Awards. But despite this early Broadway success, Marge and Gower spent most of the 1950s back in Hollywood, appearing as a dance team in a string of movie musicals, including the 1951 version of Showboat, and they became one of the most popular attractions on television variety shows. They even had their own series for a while, the Marge and Gower Champion Show in 1957. Gower Champion then came back to Broadway to direct and choreograph Bye Bye Birdie, which brought him two more Tony Awards. He followed this success with Carnival and then the mega-hit Hello, Dolly, which brought him another two Tonys. And although they weren't blockbusters on the level of Dolly, his next two shows brought honors as well. I Do, I Do in 1966, which found him nominated for Best Director, and then The Happy Time in 1968, for which he was awarded two more Tony Awards. Throughout this all, Marge Champion was his unacknowledged collaborator who worked closely with him on the choreography for every one of those shows. The next decade was very difficult for Gower Champion, with several flops and missteps in both his professional and personal life. Then in 1979, Champion learned that he had a very rare form of blood cancer. But going against his doctor's advice, he undertook the direction and choreography of 42nd Street, a show based on the classic film from the 1930s. The show's opening night is legendary. During the curtain call that followed the show's triumphant opening night performance on August 25, 1980, producer David Merrick appeared on the stage and tried to quiet the tumultuous applause. Finally, the crowd calmed down and he grimly informed the audience, the cast, and the opening night press and TV cameras that Gower Champion had died earlier that day. Pandemonium broke out. Cast members began to scream and cry. The audience was stunned, and the curtain was brought quickly down. David Merrick had actually known this all day, but withheld the information from everyone—cast, crew, and reporters—until after the opening night performance was completed— which is probably what Gower Champion would have wanted. The high drama of this incredible mix of triumph, tragedy, and showmanship created front-page news and an unforgettable Broadway legend. 42nd Street would go on to run for 3,486 performances and win a posthumous 8th Tony Award for Gower Champion's choreography as well as the Tony Award for Best Musical. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back hi this is David Armstrong and it's my great pleasure to welcome factor as a sponsor to Broadway nation this week this spring you can eat stress-free with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes you can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including popular options like calorie smart keto protein plus or my personal choice vegan and veggie you can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do: head to FactorMeals.com/bn50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation. BN50 at FactorMeals.com/bn50 to get 50% off your first box. And 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now! Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. way out there beyond this Hicktown, Barnaby. There's a slick town, Barnaby, out there, full of shine and full of sparkle. Close your eyes and see it glisten, Barnaby. But let's go back to 1964, when Gower Champion, Michael Stewart, and David Merrick collaborated on one of the defining musical comedies of the golden age, Hello, Dolly. The original production of Hello, Dolly was a triumph that would surpass My Fair Lady as the longest-running musical and tie South Pacific in winning a record ten Tony Awards, a record that Dolly would hold for 37 years until the producers won 12 Tonys in 2001. The history behind Hello, Dolly! is long, involved, and very queer. In 1838, playwright John Oxenford wrote a short farce called A Day Well Spent that was adapted into a full-length play by Austrian playwright Johann Nestroy in 1842. Both of these writers were queer. In 1938, queer playwright Thornton Wilder Americanized the Nestroy version and titled it The Merchant of Yonkers, but it was a dismal failure on Broadway, running just 39 performances. But 17 years later, Wilder extensively rewrote the piece, transforming the minor character of Dolly Gallagher Levi into the leading role. Wilder renamed his play The Matchmaker, and it became a smashing success as well as a popular film. And it was David Merrick who came up with the idea of turning The Matchmaker into a musical. The leading role of Dolly Levi was originally written for Ethel Merman, but she turned it down, as did Mary Martin. Eventually, the role would go to the star of the 1949 hit Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Carol Channing. Put on your Sunday clothes when you feel down and out. Down the street and have your picture Just like a dream, your seemed to turn about. But even though Carol Channing was not the first choice, she triumphed in the part and became a national star because of it. When Channing left the show, David Merrick took the unusual tactic of engaging even bigger stars to replace her. And because it was a role written for a middle-aged woman, there were a number of major movie stars from the 1930s and 40s that wanted to play it. The parade of dollies that followed Carol Channing included Ginger Rogers, Martha Ray, Betty Grable, Pearl Bailey in an all-black version, and stand-up comedian Phyllis Diller, who was not a movie star but incredibly popular on television during that time. Finally, Ethel Merman was persuaded to come out of semi-retirement to be the final dolly of the original run. Mary Martin took on the role as well in the London production. The Hello, Dolly! original cast recording was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2002. Ermin God, stop sniveling. Don't cry on the valises, Ambrose, let me hear that tiny chord. Ah, lovely, you're improving. Now get all 11 pieces. We're seven minutes late. Oh, boy! That album had reached number one on the Billboard album chart in early June of 1964, but it was bumped out of that spot the following week by Louis Armstrong's album called Hello Dolly. The cast album of Funny Girl was in the number three spot, followed by the Beatles' second album and Meet the Beatles. The show has become one of the most enduring musical theater hits, with four Broadway revivals, international success, and a miscast, overblown 1969 film. 2017's Tony winning Broadway revival of Hello Dolly starred Bette Midler and had the biggest advance ticket sale in Broadway history. Only two months after the opening of Hello Dolly, Funny Girl opened as well. With music by Julie Stein and lyrics by Bob Merrill, Funny Girl had had big problems during its pre-Broadway engagements until Jerome Robbins was persuaded to come in and fix it. By this time, he had inherited the mantle of show doctor from Mr. Abbott, and he soon whipped Funny Girl into a crowd-pleasing hit that led to superstardom for Barbra Streisand. Hello, Dolly! and Funny Girl, along with Gypsy, established another hallmark of the Golden Age, musicals that historian Ethan Morden has dubbed Big Lady Shows, and building on that, I call them the Big Transgressive Lady Shows. These are musicals that feature dynamic, larger-than-life leading female characters that entirely dominate their shows in every way. And most importantly, these women refuse to do what mid-century American society thinks women should be doing. And strangely, mid-century American audiences worshipped and adored them for refusing to do it. Other shows in this series include Sweet Charity, which was conceived and written specifically for its star Gwen Verdon and directed and choreographed by her husband Bob Fossey. Another in the series is Mame. This Jerry Herman smash hit had a book by Lawrence and Lee, the prolific and very successful gay straight writing team of many hit plays and musicals. Mame was based on their play Anti-Mame, which had itself been adapted from the comic novel by Patrick Dennis the character of Mame Dennis would become one of the signature icons for gay men who came of age in the 1950s and 60s. Open a new window, open a new door, travel a new highway that's never been tried before, before you find you're a dull fellow, punching the same clock, walking the same tightrope as everyone on the block. The fellow you want to be is three-dimensional, Soaking up life Down to your toes Whenever they say You're slightly unconventional Just put your thumb Up to your nose And show them how to dance to a new Rhythm, whistle a new Song, toast with a new Vintage, the fizz doesn't Fizz too long, there's the bubble stay. Simply travel a new highway, dance to a new rhythm, open a new window every day. As I just mentioned, the composer and lyricist of both MAME and Hello Dolly was Jerry Herman. He was born in New York in 1931 and raised in New Jersey. His middle-class Jewish parents loved music, art, and theater and the family frequently attended Broadway musicals. Seeing Ethel Merman in Annie Get Your Gun was a seminal event for Herman, and years later he would write the score of Hello, Dolly! with Merman's distinctive voice in his head. Young Jerry had learned to play piano at an early age, His parents both worked in Catskill Mountain hotels and Jewish summer camps, much like in the movie Dirty Dancing, and eventually they took over the management of one of those camps. Herman spent all of his summers there from age 6 to 23, and it was there that he first became heavily involved in putting on theatrical productions. He studied theater at the University of Miami, where he produced, wrote, and directed his first musical. After graduation, Herman moved to New York, where he produced several reviews of his songs— each more successful than the one before, and this is where his work began to get noticed by Broadway producers. This led to his first Broadway show, Milk and Honey, in 1961. Shalom, shalom, you'll find shalom The nicest greeting you know It means bonjour, salut, and skull And twice as much as hello This was a musical about a group of lonely American widows who were hoping to find husbands while on a trip to Israel, and it was set against that country's struggles to establish itself as an independent nation. The show was well-received and ran for more than 500 performances. Then, producer David Merrick decided to team Jerry Herman with book writer Michael Stewart to work on what would become Hello, Dolly! The unprecedented success of this show, which was quickly followed two years later by MAME, turned Herman into one of the most acclaimed songwriters of the Golden Age. But as would happen with many Golden Age songwriters, Herman struggled in the 1970s and had three very high-profile flop shows in a row. However, in 1983, he had a giant comeback with La Cage a Faux, the first musical to feature a gay male couple as the leading characters. The show received a Tony for Best Musical, and Herman won for Best Score. Then in 1985, he was diagnosed with AIDS, which put his career on hold for many years. However, he was fortunate to be one of the few of those infected early on to survive until new drug therapies could be developed that could manage the disease. Herman died just this past year at the age of 88. The Fantastics was not the only show to bring downtown avant-garde staging and experimental theater techniques to the musical during the 1960s. Three of these were hit shows that were imported from London. First and foremost, the crowd-pleasing Oliver, which featured a groundbreaking revolving unit set that would inspire the scenic designs of dozens of future musicals, including Les Miserables. The other two were Stop the World, I Want to Get Off and The Roar of the Grease Paint and the Smell of the Crowd, both shows written by Leslie Bricus and Anthony Newley, and Newley also was the director and star of both productions. Both shows were high-concept allegories that were so specific to their time that it's nearly impossible to revive them today and really understand what they were about. But their use of vaudeville and circus techniques would influence musicals such as Godspell and Pippin, and despite their quirkiness, both shows produced a string of chart-topping hit songs. Perhaps most significant was the American-grown Man of La Mancha, another 1960s blockbuster that became a truly international sensation. La Mancha's revolutionary design, staging, and overall concept would probably not surprise us at all today, but that's only because its unique innovations have been so thoroughly absorbed into the DNA of contemporary musical theater. I know I've talked about many highlights and climaxes of the golden age of Broadway, but in this last decade, if you had to boil it down to one show, I would say it was Fiddler on the Roof. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, you might say, every one of us is a fiddler on a roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? We stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. 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 Fiddler on the Roof was created by Jerry Bach, who wrote the music, Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the lyrics, and Joseph Stein wrote the book. And Jerome Robbins was the director and choreographer, all of whom were the children or grandchildren of Russian or Polish Jewish immigrants. The show became a blockbuster success when it opened in 1964, a banner year for Broadway, and it smashed all box office records of the day. The initial Broadway production played 3,242 performances, and overtook Hello, Dolly! as the longest-running show in Broadway history. Based on short stories written originally in Yiddish by the writer Sholem Aleichem between 1894 and 1914, Fiddler was the first major work of American popular culture that would depict Eastern European Jewish shtetl life with pride and affection. A 2015 article in The New Yorker magazine described the cultural impact of this show. Anticipating and helping to sow the Roots movement that burgeoned in the following decade, Fiddler helped audiences to respond to the turbulent changes that were gathering force in the early 1960s. The show's rebellious daughters carried the flame of women's liberation, Its decryal of bigotry reverberated with the civil rights movement. Its offering of a plucky Ashkenazi origin story correlated with a shift toward a national self-definition of the United States as a country of immigrants. Originally, the authors had struggled to find a producer who was willing to take a chance on the show. One after another turned down the script, worrying that a story about a Jewish family set in Tsarist Russia in 1905 would only appeal to Jewish theatergoers. But as soon as it opened, it was clear that Fiddler resonated with audiences of all kinds. Within a decade after its debut, Fiddler had played in two dozen countries around the world, finding universal appeal in its themes of generational conflict and the dynamic struggle between tradition and change. The show has been especially popular in Japan, where since its debut there in 1967, it has been produced hundreds of times. Book writer Joe Stein loved to tell a story about a Japanese producer who asked him how American audiences could understand a story that, as he said, was so Japanese. The show has received five Broadway revivals, countless national tours, and 200 schools across the country produce it every year. In a recent year, Fiddler on the Roof was produced everywhere from Smyrna, Tennessee, to Salt Lake City, to Mexico City, to Timisoara, Romania. Here's what Lin-Manuel Miranda has to say about Fiddler on the Roof. I think what makes musicals so special is that it's actually not unlike a great meal because it takes a lot of ingredients and they have to be prepared exactly the right way or it doesn't go. The souffle will not rise. It's a lot of art forms smashed together. It's music, it's dance, it's lighting, it's costumes, it's performances, and they all have to coalesce in just the right way. It's the closest sensation you can have to an out-of-body experience. And there's countless moments like that in Fiddler. In moments of great upheaval, Fiddler is always going to seem relevant because the world is always changing faster than we can understand. And we look to our traditions to guide us, but sometimes they fail us. You know, sometimes they don't prepare us for the world that's happening around us. And in Anatevka, things have been done the same way for thousands of years, but what happens when the outside world is saying you can't live here anymore? When even a wedding cannot go by without being destroyed or messed with? And that's what the show's about, and it's intensely accessible because we are going through times of great change and great upheaval. Just like today, the late 1960s was a time of great change and upheaval, and in the next episode of Broadway Nation, we will see how, in the wake of a shifting culture and ever-changing world, the established creators of the Broadway musical will struggle to uphold its traditions and conventions as the golden age of Broadway gives way to the modern era. Tradition. Tradition. Without our traditions, our life would be as shaky as... as... As a fit. broadway nation is written and produced by me david armstrong if you enjoy the show please follow us on facebook instagram or twitter and please rate and review us on apple podcast it helps tremendously in spreading the word about the show special thanks to kvsh 101.9 the voice of beautiful vashon island washington and also to everyone at the broadway podcast network